I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There were three ravens sat on a tree down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, "Where shall we our breakfast take with a down, dairy, 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 down, down?" The thirteenth step. A Ghost Story for Christmas from the Three Ravens podcast. Malene put a foot forward, listening as the snow crunched beneath her weight. The morning was still, the forest quiet, mist rising slow. She could hear the brook in the distance, the water singing in its sputtering glide, the creeping song of the teal on the lake the cracking of tree branches under their newly fallen burden. She looked left and right, then down at the faint outline of the path ahead. She breathed in, the cold biting at the inside of her nose, and noted the heady scent of rotting ferns that curled through the chill air. As she exhaled, great guttering billows of steam danced before her eyes. In one hand, she held a paring blade, its worn wooden handle warm against her palm. In her other arm, nestled in the crook of her elbow, she carried the wicker basket. She wished she had mittens, she thought to herself, and might look again to ask for a pair. But now was not a time for asking for things. Now was a time for following instructions. Her feet were clad with krakows and were wet. The leather felt frozen stiff, had done since she'd left the lower courtyard, and she wanted little more than to be back in the warmth of the keep. And yet she had a task to complete, had been sent by Rosamond and could not return until her duty was done. 
Moving gingerly, careful to maintain her footing, she inched along the route, down to beyond the split in the path that led off towards Calderbrock. Keeping on, keeping her chill blood moving, she strode in small steps, on and down, so that she might follow the route beside the stream, its crystal-clear waters bucking and running fast over mossy stones and under fallen boughs. Once beside it, she watched the waters flow, teasing at the fronds of the long grasses on the bank, noting that nobody else had walked the same route that morning. This was a little surprise, with dawn having not long since broken, yet it pleased her to be the first one who, on the morning of Epiphany, passed through the forest and marked a path leading from the castle walls and down to the water's edge. Before long, the copse she was seeking hove into view. It appeared only as a small cluster of trees on a little jut of earth around which the brook's water lapped and ran. Not quite an island, but a sacred place, she thought. She walked towards it, careful to lift her skirts as she clambered between the wet tangles of roots and clumps of putrid leaves, leaning on the trunks of the osiers to steady herself. Once she'd found a solid footing, she put down her basket, moved her numbed fingers over the bark, tracing the grooves of previous visits, previous harvests. Kneeling, she crossed herself, gave thanks to the tree, thanks to the Lord, then raised the blade and pushed it into the skin of the wood. She began to slice, trimming away lengths that she then clasped in her shivering fists. She laid one set down in the linen square in her basket. Father. She then gathered another. Son. Then the third. When finished, she knelt once more, bowed her head, again crossed herself, then quickly stood and clambered back to the path to retrace her steps. As she wended her way homeward, she allowed her mind to wander. She thought of his lordship, no doubt sat up in the eagle tower, weeping. She imagined him there, his dark head threaded with silver, but could not picture his face. This obscurity, she knew, was because she was fearful to look upon him. It was not her place, and besides, although she had heard he'd once been handsome, it was said that the scars of battle had left him but a shadow of his former self. Lost in her thoughts, retracing her steps, she looked into the depths of the forest. The morning sun, radiant and bright, was now casting a luster over the deep green richness of the holly. She noted its red berries, gathered in knotty clusters, looking almost as if clots of blood. Closing her eyes, she shook her head, casting aside her darkling thoughts of recent days, and when she opened her lids again, she saw, through the thin bare branches, a clear sky glowing thinly blue. Though her chest ached with the nip of the air, and though her heart was heavy despite the veil of shadows that hung over her destination and the thoughts of that sadness which brought tears to her eyes, she allowed herself a smile. Not a large one, no grin or laugh, just a hint of joy that twisted the edge of her mouth upwards on one young cheek which blushed in the morning air. It was then that she looked down again to watch her slippery footfalls and saw them. The second set of markings in the snow, these made 
by the feet of a boy. Not a man's feet, she thought, not big enough, not long enough or wide enough or booted, and in seeing them, what final warmth she had sustained in her slight frame drained away. Her breathing quickened, and her blood ran cold. Panicked now, she looked about, up along the path, across the embankments, down to the stream beyond. She had no idea how far the second set of steps went, to what distance they had followed her. Along to the fork of the path, she wondered? Further and down to the willows? Even so, she assured herself, it could not be him, could not possibly be. For if it was, well, such things were not to be countenanced. Stunned to stillness nonetheless, she stood alone in the forest and listened, straining her ears to hear. Would there be a crunching of feet on snow, the clatter of branches being pushed aside? Alas, there was nothing, she told herself, just the soft pitter of melting snow, the feathery breeze in the leaves, the call of the same sweet birds, the burble of the same clear stream. Before she could help herself, however, she had spoken, a single whispered word, rising up like a bubble through her throat, escaping out of her mouth and into the day. A name. His name. Dunstan? The only reply was the uneasy echo of her own voice returning to her, softened by the bare trees. A slight breeze blew, and she cursed herself for dawdling. She ought to be back already. Rosamond would be waiting, her pink fingers stained and nervous, her wide eyes hiding the fear that all in the household knew. On her return, Maline followed the familiar trail, skirting up beside the towering walls and through the gatehouse door. The porter had seen her coming, closed the entrance after she passed through it, and said nothing. There would be no grand arrivals or departures, and any thoughts of celebration, even kind words, were quite out of the question. Clambering up through the lower courtyard, Maylene noted that several sets of boots had now marked the perfect whiteness through which she had passed first, and thinking little more of the matter, she made her way to the buttery. Within, there were the familiar clatterings of pots and bowls, the rising columns of steam, the mutterings of work, and she allowed herself a warm, wet sigh of relief. Move along, muttered Guichard, one of the kitchen porters, who was looking to pass, laden with flagons of wine. Maylene bowed her head, pulling her shawls from her shoulders, moving past him as he looked to exit into the bright of the morning. She hung her shawls on the peg by the always unlocked door, then pushed on through the corridor, down to the kitchens with their bustle of activity. The chopping of herbs, grinding of meat, rolling of pastry and pounding of pestles into mortars. She smiled as she heard it, thinking that, although there were to be no feast, his lordship and his ladyship might still want to eat, even if they'd chosen not to sup together for so many days and the idea of all this industry pleased her. No matter the horror of a given event, the hustle and bustle of life would carry on. "'Morning, Maylene,' said Hella, her ample bosom dusted with flour. 
Her face was red, grey hair threatening to escape from her wimple. She wore a broad, gummy smile of yellow-black teeth and an expectant look. Meline again bowed her head, handing the basket on by its handle. Hela nodded in reply, took the delivery, and Meline walked towards the fire. She knew she ought not to, but she stood there for a moment, seemingly unnoticed, letting the crackle of the blaze warm her hindquarters. Since early girlhood, this had been a favourite place of hers to stand, and, when she arrived early of an evening, to sleep. She enjoyed the wispy aromas of the wood smoke mingled with that of goose fat, bay and parsley. "'Get on with you now,' said Hella over her shoulder. Meline turned to look at the old cook, who was now busy with something on the far side of the kitchen. Meline needed no further instruction, lifted her skirts, took one last breath of the rich kitchen air, then she made her way up to the corridor down which she had come moments before. Striding beyond the buttery and the pantry, up towards the great hall, it was only with half surprise that she found it empty. The long table was all but bare. Wooden bowls had been laid out containing bread and fruit, but mugs stood empty of ale and wine, plates untouched. She paused behind the screen at the end of the room, peering out to see the wide hearth crackling into the gloom, with but a few rushlights guttering in sticks here and there, casting a dull glow into the cavernous space. The room was, she thought, silent as a tomb, an observation that made her wince and cross herself. Nonetheless, it seemed so wrong that all these days and nights no merriment, no feasting or joy had echoed up into the rafters of this regular seat of seasonal jollity. She walked on towards the hearth, picked up a fire iron from the rack, adding two logs to the blaze and poking at the radiant glow. She looked over then to the far corner of the room to the foot of the grand stairs, the villain of the piece, with those wide flagstones that climbed up and then turned suddenly to the right. With not a soul present, she thought it safe to walk out into the room. Careful to make no noise, she replaced the fire iron and stalked slowly, holding her breath right until she was there, stood at the spot where her ladyship had landed. The flagstones had been scrubbed, but it was plain to see if you looked hard enough. The redness of the place where she had lain, her head cradled in Rosamond's lap, the unborn child spilling out in crimson gouts onto the cold, hard stone. The thought of it made Meline shiver. Since her ladyship had fallen, tumbling down the steps onto her ripe belly, splitting her smooth white cheeks and crushing the bones in one thin hand, few had ventured up or down those steps. There was talk by night that you could hear the baby crying, and more talk that you could hear the footsteps belonging to him, the disappeared heir. At the top of those steps, Meline thought, was his lordship's prized possession, the Mirror of Capsa. A vast stretch of polished bronze brought back from the Crusades, it had always appeared a thing of great beauty, and yet she'd heard her ladyship speak of what she'd seen reflected there when she fell. They'd all heard of it throughout the house, listening to the tale in whispered tones, hairs rising on the backs of their necks. Not the only thing that cracked when she fell, 
came her voice. Aileen's heart skipped and she turned wide-eyed. It was Ingram, the stable boy, with a broad grin on his face, his dark eyes glinting in the firelight. My God, Ingram, she whispered, catching her breath. You should not be here. But neither should you, he said, keeping his distance. He smelled sweet, of manure and hay, his boots encrusted with snow. I saw you come up with your basket. You'd best get back to the stables, she replied. For what? His lordship's not been out for days, not since Christmas Eve. He fell quiet as he said this, looking down at the same stain on the same flagstone that had drawn Maylene to that dark corner of the room. Cracked her mind too, seems to me, he said. Terrible thing. Maylene stared at him, flushing. He was handsome and he knew it. He also liked to sneak up on people, not least girls, about the keep. I need to get back to Rosamond, she said. Oh, I know, Ingram sighed, but can't imagine you'll go up this way. He nodded towards the broad stone steps and, stood side by side, the pair took a long look up the staircase, imagining what it must have been like when she toppled backwards. How had she rolled so far, down so many steps, each presenting a new, tangible horror? I heard her, Meline said, her voice low. Heard her scream, heard her fall. Aye, Ingram muttered. We all did. The stable boy offered no further comment, but turned and walked away, out the way they'd both come in. She watched him go, noting the small trail of snow he left as he walked, sighing as it melted away before her eyes. There were more than a half-dozen stairways throughout the keep at Oberon, most used only by a few. There were stairways for his lordship and her ladyship, and their men and women, stairways for their guests, backstairs and spirals up and down to the stores, the grand steps up to the chapel and the wooden staircases up through the galleries. Meline's favourite, not that she ought to go there, was the coiled set up towards the Eagle Tower. The chambers there were intended as guard stations, but the rumour was that his lordship, when he was young, had made them his private rooms on account of the sculptures on the battlements. The herald of the Oberon family, the great bear, stood alongside a vast eagle in flight, a serpent in its beak. It was said that as a child the young lord had played there, first with the guardsmen, and then, for the sake of propriety, alone. What Meline liked so much about the Eagle Tower was that, like her ladyship's chamber and connecting corridor, and no doubt other areas of the keep, the present lord's father had built false walls and passageways that ran around the networks of rooms. These spaces were tight, too large for grown men, but if a person was quiet, calm and careful, it was possible to sneak down through these spaces and peek, through gaps in the plasterwork or out from behind works of art, to watch at the happenings within. At the Eagle Tower, the entry to the passage was doubly cunning. Halfway up the stone stairway, a tapestry hung, emblazoned with the faded image of a knight riding out. About his feet a minstrelry danced and cheered, and in the distance a castle stood high on the brow of a coppiced hill. Behind this tapestry, if one knew to look, was a panel. Wood, 
plain and as inconspicuous as the boards either side of it, but with a slight press at one corner, the panel would tilt, not far, but just enough to enable a slim body to squeeze inside. Over the years, Meline had come to imagine his lordship as a boy, sneaking through the back corridors and hiding in the secret gloom. She herself had only ventured into the Eagle Tower once, years ago, and in doing so found the room at the top of the building all but empty. Her nervousness at entering had not been justified, for the feverish feelings of guilty sickness, the thundering heartbeats, had all led to naught. Instead, these days, she used other staircases and crept into other secret passages, all while she still could, before the full bloom of womanhood made it impossible to do so. That morning, after Ingram left her in the Great Hall, she took the pantry stairs up to the top corridor, walking along the dais, then turning left through a small antechamber towards the mirror of Kabsa. As she passed it, the vast auburn sheen rippling in the half-light of the candlelit morning, she refused to gaze into its surface, fearful of what she might see within. Instead, she cast her head down, stepping softly across the worn pine boarding. As she walked, her footsteps made the flooring creak, and in the quiet of the corridor she became aware of the sound of her own breathing. She listened closely, approaching the half-stair that led up to her lady's chambers, yet heard nothing. She thought to climb up and knock, but feared interrupting whatever was happening within. Instead, she stepped round beside the neat carpentry of the boxy half-stair and pushed gently at one corner of the panelling. It gave way, of course, the panel swinging open just enough for her to tuck her body inside. With this done, she eased the panel closed and gave her eyes a moment to adjust to the darkness. She had to crouch, but she had passed through this space so many times that she might have navigated the passage blind. Indeed, in her younger years, these passages had offered her sanctuary from Dunstan, whose childish games of chase would so frequently tip over from light-hearted play into sinister, roving hunts. There it was again his name. She'd been trying not to think about it, trying not to think about him. It was a sin, she thought, having wished so hard for him to have disappeared and to have been so happy that her wish had been granted. Folk said it was most likely that he'd fallen into the well in the upper courtyard on account of his love of throwing stones down into its depths. It was for this reason that no water had been drawn from it since Michaelmas, the day he vanished, and the keep suddenly began to feel lighter, calmer, and more peaceful. The feeling had not lasted long. As winter had deepened, rooks and crows had flown in increasing numbers, landing on the battlements and singing their maudlin anthems. Then the bad luck had started. His lordship's mare had gone lame. Boxes of darning needles had gone missing. Candles about the keep had begun to blow out with no rhyme or reason, and the wheat in the stores had mouldered. Maylene shivered, knowing how, when Dunstan would catch her, he would pin her wrists behind her back, jostle her, and put his wet mouth close to the skin of her neck. If he hurt her, she knew it was by accident, the young lord had known no different. The boy was touched by God, Hella said. Others called him an idiot. Few even spoke of him as the changeling heir of Oberon, 
but for all the misery he'd caused her through her childhood, Maylene had known that he'd not understood how to be, when to stop, what constituted jest or what signalled terror. And although the house had become so much quieter since his disappearance, she still felt as if he were about the place, stalking the corridors, and would swear, if asked, that on more than one occasion she had heard his shuffling steps and his rasping, damp-lipped breathing. Shambling her own feet about, Maylene moved forward an inch towards the secret passage. The small wooden steps someone had placed there years ago had all but rotted away, eaten, as far as she could see, by woodworm. Thankfully, she was tall enough now to hardly need them, and by pushing up on her elbows and then her hands, she was able to climb up into the space between the hard stone of the outer wall and the timber, lathe and plaster. Since her hips had started to widen, it had become impossible to walk down the passage face-on, but shuffling sideways she could still move, slowly but surely, down to the space and along the half-panelling that ran around three walls of the chamber. Then, through occasional gaps in the carvings in the wood, it was possible to see into the room. Although it was awkward and required Maylene to lie down on her side and shuffle back and forth, by doing this she afforded herself a good view of the space within. This was something she did when she was unsure whether her presence in her ladyship's chambers would be welcome, and due to recent events she'd taken to using this particular passageway with almost gay abandon. Gazing into the room, Maylene could see little at first. The fire was out, but she could still see the outline of the wooden bench in the middle of the space with the pewter jug perched atop. There was the table on the near side with the washing bowl, a few candles were lit, she saw, and as she squinted she identified the shadowy outline of her ladyship's bed, raised and curtained with wooden steps leading up on one side. Maylene's first impressions were that her ladyship was at rest, so she seized a moment longer to take in the room, observing the spiralling green and red of the painted plaster. When inside the chamber, she was always expected to be so attentive, to keep her head down and speak only when spoken to. But now, with time on her side, she saw how, against the cream background, the vines grew out, roving across the walls, occasionally blooming into crimson-petaled heads of roses. It reminded her, she thought, of the stories of the Garden of Eden that Father Jerome had spoken of, and she began to look across the artworks for the serpent in the midst. It was then that she noticed two shapes on the far side of the room. One stood, the other sat slumped in the heavy-looking, low-backed chair. The shapes were, of course, Rosamond and her ladyship, although their backs were to Maylene. But then, once she began to listen, she realised that they were talking in hushed tones. There now, my lady. There now. Maylene shifted her body slightly, then saw that Rosamond held aloft her ladyship's comb, Made of ivory and boxwood, it was a sacred object that nobody could ever touch save Rosamond, much like nobody ever saw her ladyship's locks save the pair of them. Well, and his lordship, presumably, although the household knew it had been many months since the two had shared a bed. And likewise, although Maylene knew that it was not her place to witness what she was privy to in this moment, the intimacy of it felt electric. 
She held her breath until her lungs were fit to bursting and watched on as silently as she might. As she lay in her hiding place, Maylene noted that Rosamond's movements were gentle and slow, starting at the crown of the hair and moving down its great length. Her ladyship's tresses were honey-blonde, Maylene saw, and shimmered in the candlelight, soft as goose down, rippling like wheat under a summer breeze. Looking closer, Maylene then noted that the gold was threaded through with silver. It glinted in the gloom, ghostly white, hovering in the air with each comb stroke. Again, Rosamond raised her hand, softly pushing into her ladyship's locks at the crown, drawing down in a fluid movement as if engaged in a dance. There now, my lady, she said again. There now. Watching the pair, Maylene felt a sudden rush of guilt and thought to move on, sensing that she were party to a sacred and private matter. But then came her ladyship's voice, hard and taut, so unlike Rosamond's soft and tender tones, and she knew she had to remain. I saw him there, Rosamond, she said. I saw him. Rosamond paused in her task almost imperceptibly. It was only for a moment, and then she continued, but the atmosphere of the room had shifted. You don't believe me, but it's true. "'Pale-faced with his dull black eyes, his mother's eyes, that whore!' Maylene's eyes widened, and she strained her ears to listen, but Rosamond continued her movements, slow and calm and unabated. "'You told me,' her ladyship continued, "'that he was gone. "'He is, my lady. "'You told me!' Her voice, previously cold, now became bitter, that I would never see him again. I... Rosamond looked to respond, but it was clear that she did not know what to say. She stopped combing, her shoulders slumping, her head now turning away and towards the floor. To Maylene, although she had never before seen it happen, it looked as if Rosamond was crying. Or at least that, if she were not, then she soon would be, for her face crumpled and her chest began to heave. Rosamond walked away from her ladyship, off towards the bench in the middle of the room, and she stood beside it, reaching down as if to lean on something that was not there. In response to this, her ladyship turned, and Maylene could see then, even in the half-light, her ladyship's bruised, swollen face and her high forehead. The hair there had been plucked up and away to expose her skull-like scalp, with soft down having since grown there that ran over the top of her head, almost from ear to ear. Stifling a gasp, Maylene covered her mouth with her hand, watching on as her ladyship, still sat, turned on her closest confidant. "'You told me that with him gone, my—' She clasped at her belly, pulling at the cloth of her under-tunic. Maylene noticed then that her fingers were adorned with so many of her rings, both hands, even the one broken and crushed by the fall, and that the bands were all made of engraved gold, some embedded with cabochon sapphire and amethyst. As her ladyship moved, the rings glinted like tears, yet the woman's broken face showed only blank, aching rage. My, she continued, my, 
she repeated. At this, Rosamond turned, kneeling before her ladyship, grasping her hands in her own. I would never lie to you, Rosamond said. Everything I do, I do in service of you. I would never lie. I would never. In response to this, quick as a flash, her ladyship pulled her good hand free and, in one sharp movement, slapped Rosamond hard across the face. Rosamond fell to one side, clasping her cheek, the comb clattering to the floor. Leave me, the older woman said, turning away. And with no further ado, Rosamond began to stand, dusting down her skirts. Maylene then recognised that the time for her to leave had long since passed. Shuffling back along the secret passage, Maylene tried to keep quiet, dangling her feet down into the space beside the half-stair. Just above her head, she heard the knocking of Rosamond's footfalls and the sound of the door to the chamber being unlocked. Masked by this sound, Maylene dropped down into the wooden box below the half-stair and saw the treads of the staircase flex as Rosamond strode down each in turn. Crouched in the dark, Maylene waited and caught her breath. She listened in, trying to ignore the sound of her blood rushing in her ears, unable to hear Rosamond move on down the corridor. Squatting still, Maylene felt her legs begin to ache and thought to herself that she was becoming too tall, too grown up to fit into these spaces anymore. She still waited, however, and after a time she decided it was safe to emerge. Tugging on the bottom of the panel, she raised it and squeezed her body out through the gap. She was hidden there, she knew, behind the back of the half-stair, and as she looked down at her gown she noted it was a good thing nobody could see her. She was covered in dust, and so spent a moment patting herself down as calmly as she could, trying to quietly shift the worst of the mess before she stepped out into the corridor. Once she'd done this, she almost jumped out of her skin. There, stood at the bottom of the half-stair, was Rosamond. She had not moved, was facing away, and seemingly had not noticed Maylene's presence. Furthermore, she was weeping, resting one hand on the end of the banister while the other continued to hold the side of her face. Not sure what to do, Maylene stepped rearward, back into her hiding place. She peeked around the corner, watching and waiting, and several long moments passed in which Rosamond did nothing more than stand and stare. When she finally started off walking down the corridor, Maylene remained hesitant. Carrying on down the gallery in the other direction would be of little use. It was lined with unused guest chambers, and at the end of the corridor there was only his lordship's room, unslept in, she imagined. She had no business going there, and had no business coming back from it. As such, all she might do, she supposed, was follow Rosamond from a safe distance, all the while hoping not to be noticed. Stealing herself, Maylene stepped out and looked down the gallery. Rosamond was nowhere to be seen, but, to be safe, Maylene walked at the edges of the pine boards, clinging to the walls at the places where she knew they creaked the least. Slow step by slow step, she made her way back the way she'd come, towards the mirror. Only this time, before she realised, she'd looked into its surface. In doing so, she gasped, for in its reflection she saw, on the staircase, the top of a wimpled head. Rosamond's head, she realised, sat on the penultimate step, her face bent over in her hands. 
Eyes wide, Maylene stepped back and away, towards the far antechamber and the dais, leading back towards the pantry. But in the commotion, Rosamond looked up, her eyes red with tears. Poor thing, Rosamond said, one of her hands dropping and stroking the stone beneath her. Poor, poor thing. Shy of what else to do, and conscious that she was stepping into strange, unhallowed ground, Maylene swallowed hard and approached Rosamond, moving one foot and then the other down onto the flagstones. As she did, she felt dizzy all of a sudden, lost her footing and almost tumbled forward. The moment she lost her balance, however, Rosamond stood fast and alert, grasping Maylene's wrist to make might what have been an awful fall into little more than a stumble. Careful now said Rosamond, pulling Maylene close. The last thing I need is for another of my loves. Her comment trailed off and she embraced Maylene, the two women touching in a way they never had done before. It was, Maylene thought, all but unheard of for Rosamond to behave this way, and the embrace lasted but a moment. Still, Maylene considered, Rosamond was not known for her kindness or for her grand gestures, evidently being so struck by her ladyship had shaken her confidence deeply. Once her hold was released, Rosamond stepped away from Maylene and looked at her squarely. Did you do as I asked? she inquired. Maylene nodded, adding, Hela has it. Good girl said Rosamond, now appearing entirely composed. She smiled, patting Maylene on the shoulder, adding, Well then, we'd best see if the tincture is ready. Rosamond led Maylene back to the kitchens, where, sure enough, Hella had stripped the soft pink of the inner bark away, boiled it, and the liquid was ready to be ladled. Rosamond explained that now was not the time to visit her ladyship, that her ladyship was presently resting, and that later that day Rosamond herself would ensure that the medicine was administered. After this, Maylene was told to eat her meal for the day and then to complete her normal duties. This she did, brushing out fireplaces, bringing fresh logs from the stores, replacing candles, always being careful not to be seen dallying. She carried baskets of dirty laundry out to the gatehouse to be taken away for bucking and possing, struggling back with fresh piles of linen, shirts and underclothes, all of which she brought in bundles via back stairs, corridors and antechambers. Some of these she then folded, cupboarded and stowed away until needed. Some she left, for they were the purview of others. As she went about her business, Maylene passed others of the house. She ignored snide commentary from Guichard about her slowness, smiling elsewise, thinking over and over about the scenes she'd witnessed that morning. Every time she closed her eyes, she saw her ladyship, her blue, distended face with its ruddy, wet eyes, her high hairline, and for the longest while, Maylene could contemplate little else. That was until she unbound a fresh set of linens and found within it the stained cloths Rosamond had used on Christmas Eve. It would seem that, despite the best efforts of the washerwomen in the days that followed, the blood had not been entirely removed. Maylene held them up to the light, marvelling at the marbled colours. She did not know what to do, standing there with the linens, stained in rosy hues, and in the end chose to pack them away as if unwashed, taking them back to the gatehouse without delay. Hours passed quickly in this way, and it was not long before night fell. 
With it came fresh snow, and the flakes fell in heavy flurries, twirling and cascading in the wind. When this happened, the moaning winds began to tease at the windows and door frames. Maylene was glad to recover her shawls from beside the buttery and to gather them closely about her. After a busy day, she was likewise glad that Hella had saved her a bowl of stew. She ate alone, chewing at gristle beside the kitchen hearth. Happy there, staring into the warmth of the dying fire, she spoke to no one and no one spoke to her. Instead, surrounded by the sweet smells of the room, she held fast to her chosen sleeping spot and allowed her imagination to run away with itself. In particular, she considered how the snow now falling would leave the landscape perfectly white come morning, untouched and unsullied by her passing, or that of any other. It was then, sat quietly as she was, that she realised she was entirely by herself. This was a rare thing in the kitchens, so she enjoyed the moment, revelling in the peace of the fire's sole company. Only after a time she noticed, alone in that space, that despite of the fire, the room felt terribly cold, and she soon heard, somewhere in the darkness of the corridor, a noise that to her sounded a lot like breathing. She ignored it, did not turn and did not look, but the more she tried to pay no heed to the sound, the louder it seemed to become. Well now, came a voice all of a sudden, you thought not to come to chapel on Epiphany? It was Hella, walking back in from the night. No, I forgot, Maylene replied, honestly, because she really had forgotten. Ah, oh, well, Hella continued, his lordship and his ladyship must have forgotten too, along with Rosamond, the grooms, half the serving men and the porter too. Hella smiled wryly at her own comment, and soon the room began to fill up with bodies, all of whom stamped their feet and rubbed at their arms as they came in from the cold. The time had come, Maylene realised, for the trundles to be brought out and for all the servants to gather together, laid out for the night on the kitchen floor. When all had calmed down, Hella and Maline slept close together alongside the other women of the house, separated from the men by the long kitchen table. Maylene was conscious, as she drifted into sleep, of Ingram out in the stables, curled up not far from the horses. She smiled at the idea, not wholly certain as to why, enjoying the soft crackles of the fire which popped and spat not far from her weary head. What dreams Maylene might have had that night were denied her, however. When she had laid her head down, she'd barely noted Rosamond's absence, yet it came as a surprise when she was shaken awake in the dead of night and saw, but a few inches from her face, Rosamond's visage, pale and filled with terror. Come with me, Rosamond had whispered. Make no sound, just come. Maylene did as instructed, clambering to her feet and leaving her shawls. She rubbed her bleary eyes, noticing that her wimple had become twisted in the night. She did her best to straighten it and brushed down her clothing, padding behind Rosamond as if still asleep. The older woman led Maylene along the now familiar route, down the kitchen corridor beyond the buttery, up through the pantry, along the dais and past the bronze mirror. 
Maylene, more or less, kept her eyes closed as she walked, and by the time the pair had arrived at her ladyship's chamber, Maylene was still yet barely awake. As the key slipped into the lock, however, and the hinges swung, Rosamond pushed the girl aside, and the smell in the air made her jolt with alarm. It was the smell of blood, she knew, and the smell of decay. I don't know what to do, Rosamond said, her voice trilling, creased with panic. She just... she keeps bleeding. Maylene approached the raised bedstead, the curtains around which were pulled back. There in the shadows, her ladyship was sat up, propped on pillows, her legs spread wide, her bedclothes soaked and black. Her breathing was short and rasping, her skin pale as moonlight, and her ruddy eyes were wide, fixed and vacant. How long has she been like this? Maylene asked. Not long. When night fell, she was resting, the tincture having eased the pain. I dozed in the chair, Rosamond said, pointing to it. And then, then she woke me with a scream. I, I pulled back the bedclothes and this. Maylene's mind was a buzz, her focus suddenly terribly narrow and awfully clear. Did you wake Bernard? she asked. Maylene thought of the steward of the house. Where would he be? The Eagle Tower, or... No, Rosamond continued. I did not know what to do, save sit with her and pray that it would stop. Maylene nodded. Stay, she said. It's right to be with her, and it's right to keep praying, too. I will return quick as I can, with help. Maylene crossed herself, then walked away towards the door. As she did, she turned partway back and looked again at the woman, dying in her bed. Her ladyship seemed so small all of a sudden, little more than a whitish shape half hidden in shade. As she made to exit, Maylene then heard her ladyship's voice. We did this, she whispered. We did. Rosamond hushed her, kneeling at her ladyship's side, high on the wooden steps beside the bed. The devil will take us, she continued, leaning forward on the bed, as if making to stand. The devil has come and will drag us to hell. Her ladyship tried to get to her feet, but Rosamond now stood, pushing the small blood-stained shape back behind the curtain. Stop this talk, she hissed. Say your prayers and think of God. Open-mouthed, her heart pounding, Maylene knew she could dawdle no longer. Shivering from the cold of the room, she clambered down the half-stair and turned right, striding quickly towards his lordship's chambers. His apartments were at the end of the hallway, and as Maylene walked, she gave no thought to being quiet. It was not his lordship she was seeking, of course, but Bernard, the steward. It was he who would know what to do, he who would say who to send for and who to wake, even at this ungodly hour. As expected, Maylene found Bernard laid out on a straw pallet which had been set up across the floor outside his lordship's chambers. The old man was deep asleep, a leather flagon cradled in the crook of his arm, a candle on a nearby table, burning low and casting shadows on the wrinkles of his face. Bending low, Maylene touched Bernard on the shoulder, yet he did not move. Taking a tighter grip, she shook him, his wispy white hair rocking as she did so. Dunstan, 
he said, his voice a toothless croak. Leave me be. It's not Dunstan, sir, it's Maylene. Please, sir, wake. Her ladyship is... She's bleeding, sir, bleeding bad. As Maylene uttered these words, the old man's yellow eyes rolled open to stare at her, blue-grey and rimmed with alarm. Bleeding, he said. How bleeding? From within, sir. The steward struggled to sit, leaning on Maylene's arm as he set his flagon to one side and made to stand. I thought you were Dunstan, he said. Heard him down at the far end there, shuffling about. The old man rubbed his eyes, picked up the candle and looked at Maylene. Well now, his lordship is in the Eagle Tower. He won't like to be wakened, but you'd best go by. And besides, you'll be faster to him than I. Young legs, you see. Go now, girl, wake him, and wake the priest, and send for the physic, and be fast, girl, quick as an angel's flight. Maylene nodded, leaving the old man struggling to pull on his boots and dash down the corridor and towards the pantry stairs. As she passed it, she refused once again to look at the mirror, refused likewise to look further down the corridor towards those chambers where Dunstan used to dwell. Instead, maintaining a singular focus, she rushed out through the buttery, then across the lower courtyard, noticing that the snow was no longer falling. No sooner than she was outside, however, than she'd slipped and fallen, her skirt suddenly wet and icy cold. She clambered again to her feet, making first for the Eagle Tower, the shadow of which loomed high in the clear night sky, and at the foot of which a guardsman stood, his breath billowing out as he spoke, looking to Maylene as puffs of steam. "'What's all a rush?' he said, placing his hand onto his sword. "'Bernard sent me for his lordship. I must go.' Something in Maylene's eyes spoke to the urgency of her errand, and the guard let her pass. She duly bounded up the tower's stone steps two at a time. Then, at once, she was faced with the broad, studded oak door to the room, and did not know what to do next. She could not think for the sound of her own heartbeat, which thundered through her, and she stood catching up with the moment. What was happening, she thought. The devil come? Her ladyship bleeding. Her mind whirled and she felt dizzy once more, her belly turning over upon itself. And then, before she'd even summoned the courage to knock, she found that she'd already done so. Shocked by her own actions, she stood for a moment, listening out, noting there was no response. Bolder now, she again rapped her fist on the door, harder this time, more insistent. Alas, with still no answer forthcoming, she inhaled sharply, knowing there was nothing for it. She gripped the iron-hooped handle, wrenched it to one side, and opened the silent chamber. Within, at first, there appeared to be little more than shadows and quiet. A once grand fire had burned down, and a low bed pushed against one wall was piled high with clothes and furs. Stacks of books lay about, and in the centre of the room a table stood, covered with almost empty plates and bowls, drinking cups, flagons and loose papers. Above it all, thin windows let in the moonlight, whistling mournfully in the night wind. Terrified and suddenly very cold, Maylene crept across the floor, approaching the bed. 
"'My lord,' she said, her voice quivering. "'My lord?' she repeated, and as she came nearer, the shape in the bed twisted. A voice then rang out in the gloom, his voice, dark as raven's feathers and rich as honeyed wine. "'Rosamond,' he growled. "'No, sir, Maylene, I—' His lordship responded at first with a grunt, then asked, "'Is my boy returned?' Your Maylene was again stunned to silence. She stood still beside the table and her eyes roved about the room, looking anywhere but at him. At the walls, the filthy floor, the soiled plates and half-drained cups. She saw then through the window the statue of the bear and of the eagle grasping the serpent, and a chill breeze blew in that seemed to reach through her clothes, skin and flesh, clawing at the white of her bones. "'It's your ladyship, my lord,' she said, her teeth chattering. "'She has fallen ill.' "'Hm,' replied the dark shape. It rolled back over, wrapping the furs and clothes closer to itself. "'It seems, my lord, that she might pass on.' "'Ha!' said the shape. And there was a silence then which hung in the air, and Maylene's gaze was drawn once more through the window, out into the starlight, out onto the hoary shapes of stone, each of which was dusted in snow that clung to muzzle and claw and wing. Leave me, his lordship replied. I am tired. Maylene did as instructed turning and padding slowly back across the room. She closed her eyes, trying not to imagine the expression on his face, cloaked in shadow, deep in the comfort of that bed. A look of anguish? A look of loss? A look of anger? A look of contempt? She knew not and could not picture it, but as she closed the chamber door behind her, she looked back into the room and thought she could see the flash of a grin in the moonlight, glinting like the edge of a knife. With the chamber door closed, she made her way down the stairs, beyond the tapestry of the noble knight, the minstrels and the castle, back towards the lower courtyard. She knew that she had work yet to finish, even if she could be certain of nothing else, and although the keep was still quiet, she also knew that before long the house would all be awoken. Once she emerged from the bottom of the stairwell, she spoke again to the guardsman. "'Open the gates,' she said. "'A rider is to be sent to Calderbrock. A physic is to be sent for.' The guardsman nodded, imagining, Maylene thought, that her words had come from his lordship— with no further utterance exchanged, he set to work and went to rouse the porter. Maylene, likewise, continued her errand, darting out onto the snowy stone of the courtyard, wondering where to go first. She looked to one route, then to the other, the chapel and the stables, then crossed herself and rushed towards the chantry. Quick as she might, she strode down the covered walk until the stairs up to the chapel began to loom high above her. Its steps were clad in morning frost and bathed in the light of the heavens. Stepping towards the priest's chambers, which were set into the stone beneath the stairs, Maylene noted that all about appeared dark and shut up for the night. Once again she battered on a heavy wooden door, but by now her nervousness had burned away in the cold. It was not long until a face emerged, that of Father Jerome, whose youthful visage stared at her, bleary-eyed, "'My child?' 
he asked. Maylene fell to her knees. Your reverence, she said, her head bowed. Bernard sent for you. You must go to her ladyship's chambers. She is... Maylene paused. She did not know what to say or which words to use, but again it appeared as if her countenance alone had done the talking. The young priest closed the door on her, and she heard him clattering about within. Unsure what to do then, Maylene determined that waiting was of no use to anyone. She therefore turned on her heels and rushed back the way she'd come, down the covered walk, this time peeling left and down the square-cut, shallow stairs that led towards the stables. Traversing these steps, Maylene lost her footing once again and almost careened over onto her side. She instead bounded off the wall, leaping down onto the soft, snow-covered grass, falling only onto one knee. It was then that she realised quite the depth of the night's darkness, with the snow all about her bathed in only the slightest blue light. The familiar sight of the stables appeared utterly absent from her field of vision, and a shiver ran swiftly up her spine. Unsure what to do, she steeled herself, stepping forward through the gloom. She'd walked this way dozens of times, she thought, ever since childhood, when she and Ingram had dashed through meadows full of summer flowers, chasing butterflies in the sun, when she'd sought him out for idle chat, shirking her duties. She knew, she thought, exactly where he was, needed only trust in her heart, and so she did. Striding confidently out into the field of snow, the chill creeping in through the leather of her Krakows, just as they had the morning previous. As she walked, she thought of her ladyship's face, of its swollen blackness, of the crimson staining her bedclothes, of the pallor of her sweat-covered skin. Each time Maylene closed her eyes, she saw that face, yet each time she opened them, she saw only darkness ahead. It was only through looking up to the clear night sky that she could see much at all, with the twinkling of the celestial bodies dancing in the blackness, unmoved by the terror in her veins. To comfort herself, she continued to look up, blinking only as briefly as she had to to stop herself from crying. She feared closing her eyes, feared seeing her there, the corpse of her mistress leering out from the curtains of that grandiose bed. Yet, as Maylene reached her fingers out into the darkness, feeling them turn blue at the bite of the frost, she felt icy tears welling up in the corners of her eyes. Keep on, she said to herself, her voice quivering, putting one foot in front of the other. Keep on. It was then for comfort that the words came to her, guiding her through the dark. Our Father, she said, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. She felt then a knock against her hip. She reached down and recognised it, the rough edge of the fencing about the stables. She was almost there, almost finished in her errand. Thy kingdom come, she continued, her voice but a whisper. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Her numb fingers traced along the coarse wood of the fence, and soon she found herself at a post with no adjoining crosspiece. She duly strode blindly forward, her hands outstretched. Give to us our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And forgive us our sins, for thine is the kingdom, 
She took a step further, her feet sliding on a pitch of ice, but she steadied herself, regaining her balance. The power and the glory? She was there now, she knew, and she leaned out, touching the dark shape of the stable building, running her hands over it and smiling. Forever and ever. Amen. She knocked at the door, hammered at it with her numbed palms, and duly shapes moved inside. She heard the rustle of hay, the stomping of hooves and bolts sliding back on the stable door. "'Who goes there?' came a voice. "'Maylene,' she said, her teeth chattering. "'It's Maylene. A physics to be sent for. From Calderbrook. Her ladyship is—' The final bolt slid back, and there he was. Ingram, with his bright eyes squinting from having just woken, a freshly lit lantern held aloft in his hand. "'Maylene?' he said. What are you doing out here? And with no light? You look frozen half to death. Her ladyship, Malian repeated, shivering. She's... she's dying, Ingram. Bernard said to send a rider. You must be quick now. Ingram passed the lantern over. Take that, he said, and get back to the warm. He turned away then, and Maylene heard him wrestling with a saddle, stirrups and bridle. "'Go on!' he bellowed to her. "'Get away now! You look blue! Get back to the keep and find a fire to stand by, you crazy girl!' Maylene grinned and turned away, thinking that one day the pair would laugh about this night. The occasion when she'd walked out with no coat, no shawl, no lantern, risking life and limb in the snow for a woman who likely did not even know her name. Hugging her free arm about herself, she walked then back out across the field and towards the steps she'd climbed. She could see her breath in front of her face, and though the stars seemed no brighter, the orange haze cast by the lantern offered her a great comfort in the chill. Absent-mindedly, she then looked down into the snow, seeing her own footsteps, and she paused. She saw, alongside her own, the steps of another. Not a man, she said to herself. A boy's feet. She looked up and down where she'd walked, and as far as she could see, the footsteps only went one way. She heard then the whinny of a horse, but was too cold, she knew, to head back to the stables again. Instead, she put her head down and pushed on, back towards the impending shadow of the keep, walking as quick as she might towards the lower courtyard. As she strode, she followed the footsteps. Two by two, she noted. Two by two. And she climbed the square steps up towards the buttery and heard the clattering of hooves as a horse rode out into the night. Nodding to herself, she felt pleased. Her duties had been done, her tasks completed. And as she held the lantern aloft, she felt proud for a moment of having done all that had been asked for her, even at the risk of her own life. She was taken aback then to see a familiar shape stood in the middle of the courtyard. The shape, wrapped in a tight tunic, sheepskin cloak and mittens, seemed to sway back and forth, as if about to fall. Rosamond, Marlene said. What are you doing out here? She's gone now, Rosamond replied. All gone. Maylene's eyes widened. Her ladyship? Gone. Gone. Gone, Rosamond continued. She fell then, collapsing to one knee. 
Come inside, Maylene whispered. You'll catch your death. Maylene moved close and tried to grasp Rosamond, but the older woman slapped her away, spitting and laughing. Catch my death, she cackled. <laughs> the devil can take me. The devil can take me. Alarmed, frozen to the bone, Maylene left Rosamond there, striding in through the buttery where the warmth of the keep awaited her. She closed the door behind her, walking on as if in a daze. But then, instead of heading to bed and collapsing there, she turned right, walking into the great hall, out beyond the screen, into the hollow, resounding space where the broad fire burned low and cast out long shadows. She marched up close to the blaze, standing on its threshold, feeling its warmth scolding her skin. She set down the lantern, rubbed at her arms and legs, sighed and gasped and moaned to herself. It was then that she looked at the trail she'd left as she'd walked into the room. The snowy outlines of her shoes, beside which there were others, outlined in wet, melted footfalls. Dunstan, she said. Are you there? She looked about the room, straining to hear above the quiet crackle of the fire, and she moved away from it in order to listen more intently. As she did, she heard that familiar sound, the wet-lipped rasp of his heavy breathing. Where are you, Dunstan? she asked. No time for games now. She stared into the room's four corners and then noticed, coming down the half-light of the flagstone steps, a shadow cast from a figure out of sight. Are you hiding from me? she said, a small smile forming at the corner of her lips. There's no need, you know. You can come out now. Maylene walked then across the room to the foot of the stairs. She took one step up, announcing herself. One she said, then taking another step. Two. She took another. Three. And then another. Four. She leapt out onto the half-landing that turned up to the right, expecting to see him stood there at the top. Yet the young boy was absent and nowhere to be seen. Are you still playing? she said. Very well. What are we now? Five. Six? Seven? She stalked up the flagstones one by one. Eight? Nine? Ten? Close to the landing now, she thought she'd heard a noise behind her and chose to ignore it. Eleven? Twelve? Thirteen? She said, now stood on the penultimate flagstone step. She leant out, looking down the corridor to the left, then the right. There was nothing, just empty space, guttering candles and darkness. Well now, she said, turning to face herself, looking into the shimmering surface of the mirror of Capsa. And there he was, she realised, stood right behind her, looking at her and smiling that half-comprehending smile. How, she said, unable to look away. And then she saw Rosamond's shape climbing up the stairs from below. I'm sorry, the older woman said. 
It's Dunstan, Maylene smiled. He's... But as the girl made to turn, Rosamond raised her hand and swiftly brought a fire iron down hard on the side of Maylene's head, shattering the side of her skull. I'm sorry, Rosamond continued, but you knew. Tears formed at the sides of her eyes. You knew. Maylene's eyes went blank as Rosamond shifted the girl's body. So light, she thought, so much lighter than his had been. She wedged the end of the fire iron under the lip of the flagstone step, levering it up to reveal the boy's skeleton all but fully decayed, dressed as he was on the day he died. Bringing Maylene's body close, Rosamond embraced her for the second time, the girl's blood on her tunic mingling with that of her ladyship. Rest now, Rosamond said, laying the body down in the cavity beneath the step. Rest now and sleep now, and be with the angels. Rosamond then used all of her might to replace the flagstone, which crunched into position much as it had all those nights ago. And although it was loose, and would wobble when stepped on, if you knew to avoid it, then you need not worry about falling. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men With a down, derry, 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 down, down